poor did Jesus become? Have you ever thought about that? You know, everything in this world he borrowed. He had nothing of his own. He had to borrow a place of birth. He had to borrow a boat just to preach in and go out on the Sea of Galilee and preach. He didn't even have his own boat. He had to even borrow a room to institute the Lord's Supper. Even his tomb was borrowed. That's how poor Christ became. There are countless jokes that start with, I'm so poor, or words to that effect, especially now with the economy struggling. Uh, For example, someone saw a stockbroker kicking a can down the sidewalk and asked him what he was doing. Moving, said the stockbroker. But the Lord Jesus really was poor, and when you compare the life of poverty he voluntarily lived here on earth to the immeasurable riches of what he left to redeem us, it is just staggering. Does that mean that to be like him we need to get rid of everything? Probably not, but we need to be willing to do so if he asks it of us. To be like him, we need to have his attitude toward our stuff and our time and priorities. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a daily radio Bible class taught by Pastor Steve Kreloff. These radio lessons are an extension of his teaching at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We are studying Chapter 2 of Philippians and learning the value of church unity and how to achieve it. In verses 5 and 6, Paul said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God... Let's stop here in the middle of verse 6, and let's continue the study that we began yesterday. Here is Pastor Steve. So what does Paul mean by Christ existing in the form of God? Well, the Greek word form means and you should write this down because this is, this is important. This is a, a juicy theological truth. It means the outward display of an inward nature. The outward display of an inward nature. The eternal manifestation in keeping with his essence. In other words, before coming to earth, Jesus Christ outwardly radiated the glory of God because he is God by nature. That's what Paul means. He outwardly radiated the the glory of God because by his nature he is God. In other words, whatever the outward manifestation is, it corresponds to the inward nature. This word form is used, a certain form of the word form, is used in Romans chapter 12 when Paul says, be not conformed to this world. What does he mean by that? He means let your, or don't let your outward behavior be inconsistent with your inward nature. You have had a change on the inside as believers. Now make sure that you don't live in a a life that is inconsistent with what you really are. That's the point here. What you are inwardly, you will and should be outwardly. What are you saying about Christ is this. One Bible commentator put it this way. He possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. He possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. In essence, what Paul is saying is this, Jesus Christ is God, always has been. He is God. He is God by nature. And before the incarnation, before he came to earth, the very glory of God radiated from him. Now, you and I need to understand that Jesus is God. He is deity undiluted deity. Look at John chapter 1. In the Gospels account, John 
who is living in a, in a, was living in a day and age where people were attacking the deity of Christ. They were called Gnostics, not agnostics, but Gnostics, who said salvation is achieved by a certain higher knowledge. And so we term, we put Gnostics on them, Gnosticism because of knowledge, Gnosis. Knowledge. And John begins his gospel account by saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos of God, and the Word was with God, and then he makes this wonderful statement, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Very clear, very to the point, the Word was God. In Hebrews chapter 1, We don't need to turn there. There are a lot of verses we need to look at this morning. I'll just read it to you. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The writer says, speaking of Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. In fact, going back to John chapter 1, John writes in verse 2, and he was in the beginning with God. In other words, with God the Father. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ is presented in Scripture as the creator. He is God. And I want you to understand that the enemies of Christ today deny that. The enemies of Christ today will tell you, and you have some of them come to your door and want to argue with you and debate with you, and they'll say, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. How unusual that is. Now, a person may choose not to believe that Jesus is God, but at least, at least understand that he claimed that. Even the enemies of Christ who were his antagonists, knew what he was claiming. Let me show you this. In John chapter 5, verse 18. And when John uses the term being a Jew himself, when he uses the term the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish religious leaders. For this cause, therefore, John 5, 18, the Jewish leaders were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. At least they understood it. At least they had some integrity. They didn't obviously agree, but at least they understood what the issues are. Some people today don't even understand what the issues are. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one, and they tried to stone him. Look at verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jewish leaders once again took up stones again to to stone him. They understood what he was claiming. They knew what he was talking about. Today, people will come and say, oh, no, he never claimed to be God. Well, that's absurd. He always claimed to be God. Always. So before he came to earth, he existed in the form of God. But going back to Philippians 2, notice what Paul goes on to say. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that sort of clarifies what the form of God is. It is equality with God. In other words, while being equal to God the Father, he did not selfishly hold on to this position of prominence. That's, that's the thought. Some of your versions have the word robbery. He thought it not robbery. And, and that's because that's the basic meaning of the word. If someone robs something, they clutch onto it because it doesn't belong to them unless someone take it away. Now, Jesus didn't hold on to something because it didn't belong to him. What he's saying is he, he did not, uh, treasure it. He did not clutch it to himself and not let go. He had certain privileges, certain rights. He was in the form of God. He displayed the glory of God. Angels bowed down to him. Creatures adored him. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says the seraphim actually hid themselves because of the holiness of his presence. 
He didn't hold on to that. He spoke and the worlds were made. He had all the authority and all the power and all the creation that worshipped him. And yet the Bible said he did not hold on. He did not grasp that and, and refuse to let go of it. He wasn't like a criminal who holds on to something that doesn't belong to them and doesn't want to release it because if they release it, somebody's going to snatch it from them. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold the outward manifestation of his deity as a treasure to be grasped. He gave up his rights, Paul is saying. He gave up his rights. He didn't hold on to those rights. Why? Because he thought of you. Because he thought of me. He willingly gave up his kingly position to occupy a lowly, earthly position for you. That's, that's what Paul is saying. You know what 2 Corinthians 8 9 says? You ought, to, you ought to know that. You ought to mark this down in your Bible because it is a marvelous truth. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he had everything, though he was wealthy beyond anything we could even comprehend, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Meaning spiritually, obviously. That's talking that you've come to Christ and you're wealthy. He who had all the riches at his disposal, humbled himself, became poor so that you and I might be rich. How poor did Jesus become? Have you ever thought about that? You know, everything in this world he borrowed. He had nothing of his own. How poor? Well, he had to borrow a place of birth. He had to borrow a place of birth. He had to borrow a boat just to preach in and go out on the Sea of Galilee and preach. He didn't even have his own boat. He had to even borrow a room to institute the Lord's Supper. Remember he said to that man, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Not a place of his own. Even his tomb was borrowed. That's how poor Christ Christ became. Back to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John writes something else. Not only in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but notice verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and in my version it says, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. You know what that word dwelt is? It means he tented. He tabernacled with us. In other words, for about 33 years he pitched tent. He pitched a tent himself in this world. That's how lowly he became. The Lord of the universe, the glorious God, pitched a tent. He was that tent. He tented amongst us. That's how low he became. Now, don't miss the point. The mind of Christ is selfless. It thinks of others. He had you in mind. It's an attitude of laying aside my rights for the benefits of others. Paul is really dealing with the Philippians now. Understand that. He is really focusing on the Philippians with their unity problems. Do you know why believers don't get along? It's not usually because they don't agree theologically on something. It's because we, we knock heads over rights. I've got my rights and you've got your rights and maybe your argument is better than my argument and I don't want to humble myself and give in to that and I don't want to admit I'm wrong and you don't want to admit you're wrong and so we go at it. We go at it. And I might try to be self-righteous and say, well, you're really the problem and, you know, and I've prayed about this and so forth. But it's really just stubbornness that says I have my rights and I'm not going to lay aside those rights. If you insist on your rights and you'll view others as existing to serve you, Jesus Christ did not hesitate to set aside his rights for others. 
You have salvation. If you know the Lord Jesus, you have salvation because of the mind of Christ. Selfless. One of my friends, in expressing concern for the struggles of another friend, wisely observed that we ought not to hold too tightly to anything. If we do, we are liable to get some painful rope burns. Well, that would apply to friends, possessions, or what we like to call our rights. Hold them loosely, because the Lord may take them away at any time, and it hurts to try to hold on. We will pause briefly here to greet those who just joined us. We're glad to have you with us. You are listening to Verse by Verse. Our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, is taking us through the second chapter of the book of Philippians. He has been the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, since 1981. In order to have unity in our churches, we need to have the mind of Christ. Among other things, his is a mind devoted to service. Before we return to Philippians, let's take a look in the history books for an example of the attitude required for church harmony. The story is told that during the American Revolutionary War, a man on horseback came up to a squad of of men who were trying to move a very heavy piece of timber. And there was a corporal standing by who was just watching them. He was shouting out orders, but he wasn't willing to lift one finger to help them. One more man would have uh, enabled them to move the timber. Now, the man on horseback looked at this situation, and he said, why don't you help them? The corporal said, who, me? I don't have to do that. I'm a corporal. The other man then got off his horse, took hold of the timber, and helped the squad of men move it. Then he got back on his horse and said to the corporal, next time you have a piece of heavy timber to move, call your commander-in-chief and get him to do it. And with that, General George Washington galloped off. You see, George Washington didn't have to do that. He had rights as a general. He didn't have to do that. But he didn't insist on those rights because he thought of others before himself. Now, too many Christians are like that corporal. If we don't have to do something, we won't because we've got rights. But the mind of Christ says, I don't have to do this, but I choose to. I choose to for the sake of others. You see, we expect the unsaved to be stubborn, and we expect them to hold on to their rights, but not believers. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, give preference to one another in honor. That's a great, great verse. That's a great standard. Give preference to one another in honor. Is this how you view others in your church? Is this how you view the person to your left, to your right, down that aisle? Do you prefer them before yourselves? See, that's what Paul's dealing with. Let the mind of Christ be in you. Jesus Christ laid aside his rights. Laid aside his rights. And the mind of Christ is selfless, but secondly, it is also serving. The mind of Christ serves. You see, it's one thing to think of selflessness in a broad term, but not get down to the real nitty-gritty practical issue of what this means. It reminds me of the cartoon character Snoopy, who said, I love mankind, it's just people I can't stand. It's very easy for us to say, I want to be selfless, but then go right on eating our Milano cookies, you see. What does it really mean? It means that we serve others. It means that we are we become servants. That's what Paul writes in verse 7. But emptied himself, that is to say, rather than grasping his rights, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Christ, 
The mind of Christ serves. He became a bondservant. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he emptied himself? This is where, for the most part, volumes have been written. More than I have any time to go through of what this means. How did he empty himself? Well, we know it certainly does not mean that he emptied himself of deity. Did Jesus Christ ever stop being God? No. That's an absurdity. He never stopped being God. There was never a point in history and eternity that Jesus Christ wasn't God. Now, the Gnostics of the first century and the Gnostics of the 20th century, though they come in different names, believe that. They believe that uh, that at his baptism, the, the deity entered into him, but at the cross, deity left him. Well, that's ridiculous. And that's not what the Bible teaches. He emptied himself. In fact, we, um, we sang that great song by Wesley. I love that song, And Can It Be? But there is one phrase I refuse to sing. Emptied himself of all but love. That's not true. Now, I know that Wesley believed in the deity of Christ. As he says, And can it be that my God should die for me? But that's not accurate. He did not empty himself of all but love. He did not empty himself of the attributes of God. And the only thing he held on to was the love of God. But he emptied himself. Well, I think that we're given an insight how he emptied himself when you read this. But emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. It's a paradox. He emptied himself by taking on himself the form of a servant. In other words, he became man. Someone said this, when he enrobed himself in flesh and enslaved himself for humanity's sake, he laid aside certain rights as God. He enrobed himself in flesh, and he enslaved himself for humanity's sake. You see, he only gave up the outer manifestation of deity. He didn't radiate the glory of God anymore. In fact, he put a self-limitation on himself. He put a limitation on himself of some of the use of his attributes at times. Why do you think, and maybe this will clarify for some, some of us, why do you think there's a time in the Gospels where someone said about, when will you come back? And he said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. I don't know. How could God ever not know something? Does it mean that he's not God? No, it meant that while on earth, he put a self-limitation upon himself. He limited the use of some of his attributes at certain times. He certainly knows now. He could have known at any time because he's omniscient. He knows all things. But there were certain things he limited himself to. And those were, were some of them. Other times he knew everything. He said to Nathaniel, I, I saw you under the tree, and I know what you're thinking. How could he know that? Because he knows everything. So when we say he emptied himself, it simply means that he gave up the outer manifestation of deity. He took upon himself the form of a, of a man. He was a man. And he stopped u- the certain, certain use of some of his attributes at certain times. There were other times he didn't. It's a paradox. He was like a king who puts on garments, the garments of a peasant. He's still a king, isn't he? Only by outer appearance, you'd never know it. Kind of like the pauper and the prince who exchange places. He no longer existed in a manner equal with God in the sense of the outward display of of deity. That's why in John 17, verse 5, Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I ever had with thee before the world was. He didn't say restore to me deity, just restore that glory that I haven't had for these 30 some odd years. 
So he remained God, but he also became a man. Fully a man, a man who was a bondservant. Now that's the amazing thing. The sovereign of the universe stooped to become a servant. A servant. And he was a real servant. Notice in Philippians uh, 2, verse 7, taking the form of a, of a bond slave. He, this wasn't theatrics. This wasn't a play role. Remember what we said form means? The outward display of what the real nature is? That is to say, by nature, he was really a man. And he was really a man who was a slave. This is not theatrics. This is not pretending. He didn't just take this role on and pretend to be this. He really was this, just like he was and is really God by nature. He was a bondservant, really, by nature. He was a real man. You see, the mind of Christ serves others. It gives up its rights to become a servant. He was a bondservant. In the gospel accounts, Christ is readily available to all kinds of people, to harlots, to fishermen, to tax collectors, to religious leaders. He was there. He's a bondservant. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, he said, "Some uh, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that great passage in John chapter 13, he actually uh, stripped off his garments, put on an oriental uh, robe of a slave, a towel, and, and stooped to wash their feet. That's being a bond slave. And then he said, what I've done to you, you do to others. An example. You see, that is precisely Paul's point. The mind of Christ says, how can I serve you, not how can you serve me? How can I serve you? Are you available to be a servant? Do you know that's why we gather on Sundays to be equipped to be servants? It's one reason. If you look at, at Ephesians, just turn back one book to Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 11, the apostle writes to this church, probably a group of, of churches, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers. That's how it ought to be in the Greek language, pastor teachers. He gave these men to the church. Why? Verse 12 says, for the equipping of the saints. The saints are you guys, okay? The saints are the, is the congregation. For the equipping of the saints, for the maturing of the saints. Why? For the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. The reason that what ought to be happening, what ought to be clicking, is when we gather on Sundays, and that's why it's important to be, on, be here Sunday nights. Because if Sunday morning equips you, then Sunday night doubly equips you. And you are being equipped to be servants, to use your gifts and your talents and your abilities to serve others. The service of the, of, of the, the Lord. That's what he's saying. For the work of service. As you grow in Christ and you learn these truths, then you are better equipped to serve the Lord Jesus by serving others. Are you serving others in the context of the local body? That's what he's saying. You're called to be a servant. The mind of Christ is selfless. It's also serving. Often we struggle to know God's will for our lives, and sometimes it is a lengthy process to determine the specifics, especially for a career path. But one thing we can always know, God has called us to service no matter where our careers take us. We need to wrap things up here right now. But I hope you'll be back with us for the next Verse by Verse and the continuation of our series on unity from Philippians chapter 2. Our instructor is Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We at Verse by Verse Ministries are a listener-supported ministry, and we are thankful for the gifts and prayers that keep us on the air. Our web address is versebyverseradio.org. You will find lots of audio files there, including today's broadcast. There are also links to subscribe to our complimentary newsletter and to our free podcasting service. 
That's versebyverseradio.org. Our class today was the middle of a three-part message. To hear the entire message without announcements, you can order an audio CD. Give us a call at 727-441-1714. Leave your name and a number, and we will call you back during weekday office hours. The number again is 727-441-1714. Say, do you remember the Fonz on Happy Days? There was a word he just could not say about himself. He couldn't say, I was wrong. It just wouldn't come out. Well, most of us have a similar word. We can't say, I will submit. Pastor Steve will have more about that on the next Verse by Verse.